0: I'm going to be honest, I've never been introduced by a pre-recorded video before. Um, So I don't know, do I thank Fran from the past or do I thank Fran if she's watching, if she's not distracted by Toby and Alliday? Um, But as Fran said, my name is Matt and this morning we're going to be looking at something called the Golden Rule. Now. A couple of weeks ago, Duncan taught on a one-off message on John 3:16, which he introduced as probably the most well-known verse in the Bible. And if that's the case, this verse is definitely a contender for the silver medal in that contest. Which is ironic because it is the golden rule. Um, But we're going to jump straight into it um, and read out. It's just the one. It is Matthew chapter 7, 12, and it's on the screen. If you've not got your Bible with you. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And it's nice and short, so I can read it again so it can can properly sort of take root. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, besides being a very well-known Bible verse, you may be familiar with this even if you've not studied the Bible, or even if you've not heard it in a biblical context, because this message, or at least a version of it, is everywhere. It is in media. Many companies use it in their code of ethics. And it's even found its way into the the Kentucky Department for Motor Vehicles pledge, where drivers have to agree to treat other drivers as they would like other drivers to treat them. As a driver myself, I personally found that quite challenging because I can find myself very frustrated by other drivers a lot more than I should. And so this passage has become known over the years as the golden rule. It's not quite clear when it was first referred to as the golden rule. It seems likely it was somewhere around the start of the 1600s. So for a good three or 400 years, this has been the golden rule. And I think when we hear that word rule, particularly at the moment, over the past year, we've become so familiar with these extra rules and regulations that they can just become a part of our life. And I'm not going to focus specifically on, on the rules of COVID and the regulations we've had over the past year, because I think this, this message and what Jesus is saying here is so much bigger than our current situation. But as people, As Christians, I think we can have many different responses to the idea of rules and it can bring many different responses and thoughts. Some rules are designed to bring order and do that very effectively. Often these would be the rules we see in a game or in a sport. If you turn up to play a game of football it's important that all of you are playing by the same rule book because if one team has turned up with the rules for European football and one team has turned up with the rules for American football, it's going to get interesting. And I'm not going to press the analogy too far because those of you who know me will know I'm not that big into sports. I I only play one sport, which is roller derby. And to be honest, I don't really know the rules for that one. Rules can also bring a sense of expectation. If there's a rule for something, then we can expect that it's going to be relevant, that that thing's going to come up. I remember when I was young and I was learning about the rules around fire safety and I learned the simple phrase stop drop and roll and when maybe five-year-old Matt heard that and learned it I was so sure that was going to be a big part of my life I thought on at least a monthly basis if not more often I was going to just spontaneously catch fire and I was going to have to stop drop and roll To this day i have not ever actually had to use that and the concept has become a little less exciting and a little more scary but rules can prepare us for what's coming up but they can also produce fear if there is a rule for for something really scary then we know that we need to avoid it for example if you're on a beach and you see a sign saying sharks no swimming you're going to take notice of that because it's something that's scary and If I see, like, I may not think there's definitely sharks there, but that sign says there are, so maybe leave that. Although sometimes we can go the other way when we see a rule. I'm sure I'm not the only one who will walk past a wall, beautifully white, with a sign on it saying, wet paint, do not touch. And this piece of paper has no reason to lie to me. Like, and yet somehow, and I have no benefit for proving it wrong, but somehow... My hand twitches, and I just, I feel like, who is this sign to tell me who I am and what I can and can't touch? Bit of advice, definitely do not touch if you're on the way to a meeting where you have to shake people's hands. I have learned this the hard way on shamefully numerous occasions. So when we have all these different responses and reasons for rules, we want to ask, what is Jesus's intention when he delivers what has come to be known as the golden rule. And Jesus goes on to make reference to the law and the prophets. So I think the word rule is apt for how Jesus is using this. Now, this golden rule takes a special place in Jesus's wider sermon on the mount. Up till over the past, I think about 10 weeks or so, we've been hearing fantastic messages on what Jesus is teaching on this hillside as he was sat and other people were standing listening to him, which is how it would have been because in those days the teacher sat and everyone else stood. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you do that. But he was teaching them about the kingdom, which is a very, sounds like it could be a very niche term, but he has been introducing how his kingdom works. It's almost like, a manifesto, not in that it's an argument saying I think this is how the world should work, but it is a description of this other kingdom, this other set of possibilities of ways of living and ways of being together. And as he sets this up, he is inviting people in. He's saying, This is what my kingdom looks like and in the verses after this he goes to to say some fairly challenging things and some closing remarks which Duncan will will speak on next week but there's almost this unspoken question as he delivers this golden rule which is this is this is the kingdom this is where I'm inviting you to be are you in are you coming with me So when we're thinking of how the original audience are hearing this, as I said, you are probably quite familiar with something along these lines, and that wouldn't have been terribly uh, different for the audience at the time, because Jesus wasn't the first person to say something along these lines. There was already an adage that had come about from a guy called Rabbi Hillel, who was an influential Jewish thinker and teacher in the decades before Jesus started his ministry. And Rabbi Hillel was challenged to summarise the entirety of the Old Testament in the time that someone could stay standing on one leg. And so the way he put it was, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. That which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. And when we glance at this, it can seem almost interchangeable with what Jesus has just said. What's hateful, don't do to them. What you would like them to do to you, do also to them. But Jesus is doing a few things when he speaks on this. One of the key things we're seeing is that he switches it from the negative to the positive. He's not just saying, don't do these things to them if you don't want it done to you. He is saying, do things to them. And that is, In some ways, that can be reassuring because it gives us a direction to go in. If we're not sure of like, okay, well, I I can avoid doing those things, but if I'm avoiding doing those things, what do I actually do with my time? And Jesus Jesus challenges us here to actively pursue others. When we want to sort of work out, okay, but what is it that I want others to do to me? How do I want others to treat me? As I said, he is is speaking off the back of some fantastic teaching on giving and fasting and resolving conflict and anxiety. And he's just coming straight out of a passage, not that Duncan spoke on last week, because things were moved around a little, but that um, Derek Tidball spoke on a couple of months ago on God's provision and knowing that God will always give good things. And therefore, if we are buying into this kingdom, then that highlights what Jesus means when he says that we need to actively do that to others, when we have to actively kingdom other people. But as I said, he is he is giving us something to do, but that is also increasing the challenge. We don't just have to avoid doing that which is hateful. We don't just have to avoid doing the things that the law prohibits. We have to actively live out the kingdom. We have to actively share the kingdom values in our actions and in our words and in the way we treat others. And that can be challenging because when we have the line of don't do this and don't do that that's maybe just about manageable. The the religious teachers and some of the people in the highest positions of authority within Jewish culture they could probably manage most of that. Pretty much Pretty much all of the law, they would have actively refrained from breaking. But we know from all Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees that he was not a big fan, and this is the part of the message that they were missing, that they were avoiding the negatives, but they weren't living out the love of God. In Leviticus, we hear that we are called to love our neighbor as ourself. Again, this ties very closely into what Jesus is saying. Jesus is calling us to be active participants in a kingdom, not just recipients of this love and these values, but ambassadors instead of citizens, that we don't just take part in this kingdom, but that we pursue it, that we pursue extending it to our fellow man and our fellow woman. Jesus is also quite general on who we are supposed to treat in this way. I think we can, we can hear others and be like, okay, but, but who exactly do I need to go to? Who exactly do I need to, to share the kingdom with? Do I need to share it with, with Frank? Because he frustrates me and he's annoying and he never, un, he never mutes himself on Zoom. And then when he has muted himself, he can never unmute himself. Do I really need to take it to him? Now, when Jesus says the word others, the Greek word we have in the original text is anthropos, or anthropoi in the plural. And this simply means people, in the broadest and most inclusive sense of the word. It is in fact the taxonomic word that they would have used to distinguish people from plants and animals. So if you've got that person who you're really not sure you can bring the kingdom to, ask yourself, are they a plant? Are they an animal? If not, I'm afraid this applies. And for some of the people you're thinking of, it might not just be Frank who's annoying and irritating. It could be someone who has genuinely hurt you. And that can be difficult. And I'm not saying go out this afternoon and start blessing them and kingdoming them. But be aware that they are not excluded from this calling to treat others as we would want to be treated. I'm not going to dig deep into how to go about that But as I said, Jesus is summarizing a lot of his teaching so far. And a couple of months ago, Robin taught really well when Jesus told us to love our enemies. So if this is something you're struggling to do, go back and listen to that message. Not right now, but maybe over the coming days. Or, if I'm boring you, by all means, do it right now. One of the ways we're often taught this rule as children, and certainly what I think is the first time I came across it, is the idea of a social contract. I grew up with an older brother and an older sister. I was the youngest of three, which meant I was the annoying one. And it's very different, difficult to write rules against being annoying because it's not a specific thing. And I was always brilliant at, at circumnavigating the rules. So I'd have the rule of, you, you can't go in your brother's room. I'm like, okay, I can't go in, in, in his room, but his room starts here. So I I can just stand right here, and then I'm technically not breaking the rules. And then I'd be winding him up, and then he'd hit me, and then we'd both be in trouble, and I'd be confused because I didn't break the rules, he did. And so we were often taught of, well, if you don't do that to him, then he won't do that to you. Or if you are kind to him, then he will be kind to you. And it becomes this social contract of, reciprocity of treating others so that they treat us in the same way or treating others as long as they treat us in the same way. Because as soon as either me or my brother had broken one of the rules, the other took that as carte blanche of, well, he started it. He's done this to me, so I I, I don't have to follow this rule anymore, so I can do this to him. And that's not what we see. Jesus is not telling us to expect the same response as we give to others. In fact, Jesus' words a couple of chapters earlier said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And through that, Jesus is saying that if we partake in these acts of kindness, if we partake in expanding, expanding the kingdom, then we can't necessarily expect to have that return to us. In fact, we can almost certainly expect, in some instances, the opposite. However, when we do get that, the result, based on what Jesus said, seems to be more kingdom. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as challenging as it may be, when we are called to continue kingdoming people in the face of persecution, that's what Jesus loves to see, and that brings more and more of the kingdom into the world around us. And the disciples, too, saw this in the years and the decades after Jesus' death, death and resurrection. They were building the early church. They were actively living out this kingdom, and they were, and they were doing it fantastically. But so much of the response we see to them is persecution, persecution exile even execution so if we are being persecuted for treating others with love and in the way that Jesus wants us to we are in very good company jesus then goes on to say that this is the law and the prophets or your trans- translation may say this sums up the law and the prophets and as i said this this verse is already summarizing a lot of the teaching so far on Jesus's kingdom and by saying this is the law and the prophets Jesus is extending that summary it's not just summarizing the Sermon on the Mount but it is summarizing the entirety of the law and the Old Testament and some of the people listening to that might be thinking fantastic we've got all this scripture that's been so hard to learn and so hard to read and keep track of what says what and now we've just got this one simple Command that we need to follow. But then they might remember what Jesus said a couple of chapters ago. Of course, they wouldn't have been thinking in chapters, um, but they'd have remembered that Jesus said that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so Jesus has been quite clear from the start of this message that he is not abolishing any of the law. And that may be worrying for the original audience, and it may be worrying for us because the people of israel had had such a rocky relationship with the law all of the ways i described our response to to rules and regulations and restrictions to our lives they all applied to the people listening to jesus here they would all also struggled to to keep track of what the law meant what it was for and they'd have been finding ways to to work around and not have to follow it and now they're like but but you, you said we just have to do this. And, and, but no, no, we have to do all the other stuff as well. How, how can we even keep on top? We thought you were making things easier, but now we see that again, Jesus is increasing the challenge. And this is because I think the people listening on the hillside up till now, and probably for a good while after, fundamentally misunderstood what the law is about and what, what it's for. Jesus said earlier that he came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And when we see laws and rules of ways that we can bring the kingdom we can try and we can work hard at it but we're always going to fall short. Because Jesus didn't come to teach us about the law and to add to the law so that we could fulfill it ourselves so that Jesus could give us that just that little nudge we needed to be able to follow the law better. Jesus came to fulfill it for us because he knew full well that the people he was speaking to could not do that. In the negative, as I said, may be possible to avoid all of the law, to avoid all of the sin and the pitfalls that the law is speaking against. But in the positive, to, to actively pursue the kingdom in every action, in every word, in every breath throughout our lives. I think I'm safe to say that all of us would fall very short of that bar. But Jesus is the one person who never fell short of that bar. He, in his life on earth, demonstrated both the law and the kingdom throughout his life. He refrained from every sin that the law spoke against, and he actively loved And he actively introduced people to the kingdom through everything he said, through everything he did. And so he's calling us not to follow the law ourselves completely, but to join him in the life that did fulfill the law. And he, when he went to the cross and died for our sins, he took all of our shortcomings and he took all of our sins and our failures with him so that people who trust him and people who believe in him have had all of that sin dealt with. All of that sin died with him on the cross and was buried with him in the grave. And then when Jesus came up and arose from the dead, he left all that sin behind. All that sin is now buried and we don't have to, to drag it with us into this kingdom. Jesus set the bar high, but he also brings us up to that through his actions and not our own. In the worship time earlier, we were singing, and can it be, which speaks so greatly about us not coming into the kingdom on our own merit, but on the merit of Jesus's life and the merit of the things Jesus did. And it says, Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim this crown through Christ my own. We are coming into his kingdom, not as outsiders, not as refugees with baggage, but as sons and daughters of the one on the throne. The one on the throne has shared his position with us. When we read from Philippians earlier, we, we read that, that Jesus made himself a servant that Jesus, despite having that authority, despite being the king of the kingdom he is teaching about, he made himself a servant to us, to to bring us into his kingdom as co-heirs with him. And the more we follow him, and the more we trust in him, the more we can bring this kingdom the more we will see it come to life through our actions and into the world around us. And we can't do that on our own. We can't even come close. But we have the most amazing example in Jesus. And the more we follow him, the more of the kingdom we'll see.